morning, everybody. Um, just wanted to bring your attention uh, to a couple things. Number one is if uh, it, we've gotten some technology stuff figured out. Thank you, Travis. Um, and there is live streaming in the building. So you can, you, can, you can still have that at home online church experience and still come. Best of both worlds, right? No, we have that in the nursery. So that's the first door on the other end of the fellowship hall to the right. And we have it in the, another room, I forget the name. Anyway, nursery is a great spot for little babies, quiet, but you can still participate. And uh, the other room with the toys, about three doors on the left, is great for toddlers. They can just make noise, but you can still kind of engage with a sermon. Because we do know this, and this is one of the great things about technology, sometimes moms will come to church and they'll just think like, what was the point of me coming? Because my child's cranky and doesn't want to listen to a sermon. And I just basically have to be out of the room the whole time. So we're trying to, to mitigate that. Uh, so if you've got a cranky kid or you're in a cranky mood yourself and you want to go play with toys to make it better, uh, it's, that's all down, down the hallway. Um, and the other thing I want to let you know, just because this will be a transition towards the end of service, and we're very excited, but uh, Brian Hansen is going to be baptized today following our song service. So yes. So what we're going to do is uh, we'll sing, and David actually is just going to transition you out of this room, down the hallway, into the fellowship hall where we're going to participate in that while you're singing. So it'll be a little different. You're, you're ne- you probably never walked and sung before, but you're going to do it today. You're going to use all those brain muscles that God gave you, but I think it's going to be interesting to try. All right, so uh, if, uh, turn your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. You know where that is, right? Somewhere in the Old Testament. Um, (laughs) We don't go to the book of Zechariah very often, but we're going to go there today, uh, and we're going to highlight two verses that I think are relatively important. Um, (laughs) It's kind of funny to say relatively important. The whole Bible is important, but these these two in particular. Um, And and the reason we're we're doing this is because uh, it really gives shape to the topic uh, that we've been addressing the last few weeks where we're talking about race and discipleship and scripture. Um, so this Zechariah passage, I just want to set it up real quick and then we'll read it, but it's kind of your classic, like whatever caricature you have of like the Old Testament prophets who are just kind of yelling at everybody, this feels like that. So the story so far is, is that the, uh, the people of Israel have they've just messed up. God's been sending prophets for hundreds of years saying, shape up, shape up, and they, they're like, whatever. And finally, this nation of Babylon comes sweeps through, carries everybody off into captivity, and they're there, you know, for a long time. And finally, incrementally, things slowly return to normal. People get back to normal. feels a little bit like right now. And they're rebuilding the, 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 the walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, and everything's slowly progressing back to normal. But the problem is, is so is their walk with God. They're beginning to do those things that got them in trouble in the first place. Parents, can you relate? And, and the prophets are like, you're kidding me. We just talked about this. And so the prophet Zechariah is like, guys, you have got to get it together. We just had a whole exile about this exact problem, and you're doing all the same things again. And so the crowd that's listening, you know, that's gathered, they're like, what do you want us to do about it? You want us to be sad? Do you want us to, to, to fast? Is that what God wants? And this is the response, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. This is what I want. This is what I want you to do. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. 
Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. I mean, guys, let's start here. Just be nice, all right? Um, I, I told you a story about Michael two weeks ago. I told you a story about my dad last week. It seems only appropriate to tell you a story about Michael and my dad this week. I've got a great picture that I want to show you from when we lived in Taiwan. This is my father uh, and Michael. <laughs> my dad's the one in the big motorcycle. <laughs> Michael's the one in the small one, if you need some help with that. Uh, everybody in Taiwan drives mopeds, motorcycles, scooters, that sort of thing. I mean, their cars are not uh, very common. You'll put five or six kids on a motorcycle. I remember with my parents many times, you know, I'd be facing backwards, you know, no helmets. You know, it was a, it was a different era. But uh, my dad one day was driving, he was by himself, he was driving through this intersection, and somebody else hit him. Now, you know, uh, different countries have different sort of like laws and right-of-way ideas, things like that. Uh, but the other person, the local man, had hit my dad. I mean, he was at fault. But it seems that his reasoning was to, toward my dad, you are a foreigner. If you hadn't been in my country, I would not have hit you. Therefore, it's your fault, and you need to set this situation right. And, of course, that was in the form of uh, financial compensation. My dad is at a serious disadvantage because he doesn't know his rights. He's not sure what to do. You know, we know what to do here. You exchange insurance. You call, you know, you whatever. You call the police just to have a record of the incident. He didn't know what to do in that situation. So he's like, listen, it's not my fault. I'm just going to go about my, my day. Well, there's not many foreigners. I told you this. There's not many foreigners. So this man knew where my dad lived, kept harassing him, saying, constantly saying, you need to pay to make this right. You need to pay to make this right. My dad didn't know what to do, didn't want to pay. We also suspect that he thought, oh, this is just one of those rich foreigners, and ha, little did he know that missionaries are not rich foreigners. Like, you know, we wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't be getting any money from us. Um, so the idea was, is my dad finally thought, I've got to go to the police. We've got to go to a third party for justice, to set this right. We've got to go to someone who can arbitrate the situation and make it right. And so he and this other man go to the police station. My dad on this visit happens to have my little brother Michael with him. He wasn't riding the trike, he was on the motorcycle. And as they get off their relative mopeds, motorcycles, and walk up to the building, he, the other man drops his claim against my dad. In the, in, in the span of maybe two minutes between getting off the motorcycles and walking towards the building, the other man has decided, actually, this situation is right. This situation is just. There's nothing else that needs to be pursued here to make it right. Does anybody have any guesses what happened in those two minutes? I heard it. Michael happened in those two minutes. The local man saw my dad, a foreigner, taking care of a fatherless child who, had, who was born with disabilities and thought, you know what, actually this situation is right. It is just. He even thanked my dad, went away. That was the end of the story. Now that's pretty interesting because at the heart of that interaction is this really fascinating and sophisticated idea that we tend to miss. And it's really important to this conversation that we're having about race and faith and, and Scripture. We're talking about Scripture, discipleship, and race in that order. Sometimes we get it mixed up, but we're talking about Scripture, discipleship, and race. And we've used the word ethnos 
Because that is a Greek word out of the Bible that describes a much better range of this topic, a broader range of this topic. Because it is, when you say race, you're grouping millions of people together as if they have all the same story. And that's just not the way people are. But we all are a complex mix of our nationality and our heritage and our upbringing, all kinds of things. And we rarely know people's stories by looking at them. If you were to look at them and categorize them, you are doing something that isn't actually helpful to the conversation. So ethnos is a much better word. Um, in fact, our community garden out there is a perfect example of like the ideal ethnos in, in our culture, in our society. America was designed, the United States of America was designed to be this, this bringing together of different cultures and, and different ethnicities it's, it was, and nationalities. It was designed to be that, and we have gotten away from that. We have become a nation of immigrants that no longer wants immigrants. It's crazy because you wouldn't be here if it weren't for immigrants. But that garden is a perfect example of that because in that garden, we have some volunteers that till it up and divide it up, and then we've got people of all different ethnos. We've got people from Cameroon and Ukraine, and we've got people from uh, Laos, and we've got Hmong refugees. We even have some people from Woodbury in that garden out there. And it's all this beautiful kind of mix of different identities and nationalities that are all growing stuff together. It's beautiful. You should be proud of that. In fact, and this is maybe pressing this point too far, but people do tend to have a negative association of diversity when it comes to the, the city of Woodbury. Not, not to the church, but the city of Woodbury. They think Woodbury, oh, it's just a bunch of rich white folks. Actually, that's not true. Woodbury's pretty diverse. If you go into an elementary uh, class, you'll see a lot of diversity. There is a presupposition people have made, but it is definitely changing. And in fact, and I think this is worth noting whether, you know, this matters to you or not, Woodbury Church of Christ is an accurate cross-section of the diversity that we see in our community. That's a good thing, the ethnos that we see. We've also, in this conversation, tried to tread very carefully and thoughtfully and precisely through all this because this topic of race has acquired all this baggage that's actually really unhelpful to the conversation because it has become a stand-in for a much bigger ideological perspective that seems to be at conflict when you talk about race. It's a whole perspective about government and humanity and the what, makes, what makes things fair or right or just. So this is, uh, this, this, we've been trying to be very scriptural throughout all of this. So justice, justice. Justice is a universal ideal. You, you've never met anybody that doesn't think justice is a good thing. There, there are no nonprofits that exist whose mission statement says something like, to create less justice in the world. Like, everybody wants it. You don't have to be a Christian. You can be an atheist and still think justice is a good thing. And that's kind of the conversation or the idea about justice is sort of at the root of, of this whole conversation. See, it's this universal ideal, but people don't agree on what constitutes justice, what actually is justice, or really, honestly, a biblical idea of, of true justice. And so that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about how does the Bible define these ideas, and then how does this, this integrate with the idea of ethnos and race in our, in our culture. Most people, I would say, I think it's fair to say that most people think justice equals fairness. Justice equals fairness. If you had siblings, 
you're like this is hardwired into your DNA. Like ki- kids who have siblings can can know to the micrometer the different sizes of a piece of cake. And if a sibling got a larger piece of cake, that's not fair, right? They, they're measuring out precisely the amount of Kool-Aid. I remember my wife's family growing up, they used to announce at the dinner table that however many people, they would say, everybody only take one ninth or whatever, and everybody was supposed to portion it out. But you know what they all did? They all tried to take as much as they could because there was this, this sense of fairness, but it, it was only applied to if someone else got more than you did. It wasn't really, if you got more, it was kind of okay. But there was sense that justice somehow equaled fairness. Think of all the colloquialisms about fairness. First come, first serve. You snooze, you lose. If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. Those are all justice equals fairness claims. And they are always used to advantage or sort out a dispute that it works for the person saying it. So no one ever says, well, I snoozed, so I lose. You know, nobody says that, aside from the poor grammar. Nobody says, well, I was second, so, you know, nobody says that. Um, It's always the person who is advantaged by that claim. So we might broadly define justice as fairness, justice as fairness. Now, if we can, if we can, I don't know if this is possible, if we can set aside our notions of justice, whatever you grew up with, if you grew up with siblings or if you just, you just have a sense of justice, if you could set those aside for a second, we're going to try to rebuild our idea of justice on a new and biblical platform, and then we're going to apply it to what it means about ethnos. Uh, Ancient Hebrew language is fascinating, right? I mean, self-evident. I mean, I don't have to tell you that it's fascinating, do I? I mean, you just know. No, sarcasm. Most people are like, oh, my eyes are about to glaze over because ancient Hebrew. But I think it's amazing because uh, they used very concrete language for very abstract ideas. Very concrete language for very abstract ideas. Remember we talked about this in the, uh, the um, sermon series about the Spirit, where they saw the wind blowing the trees or the palm trees or whatever, and they thought, wow, there's an invisible force that is moving that. And then they saw that someone's breath was associated with their life. Oh, there's something invisible that we can't see that, that seems to be connected to their life. And so when they thought, how do we describe the invisible, life-giving power of God? They used the same word that they used for breath and wind. Because it's, very con- it's a very concrete language to describe abstract ideas. And that makes sense to me. I think this is kind of interesting. Maybe, maybe you will. The Hebrew word for anger abstract idea. The Hebrew word for anger is nostril. Nostril, same word. So your nostril and your anger are the same. Do you know why they use the Hebrew word for nostril for anger? Because what happens when you get angry? What happens with your nostrils? They flare a little bit depending on who you are. Yeah, they flare. Do you know what it means to be intensely angry? They add a modifier to that. They say that you have a hot nose. So when you read in the Old Testament, God's wrath descended on the children of Israel, it literally is God's hot nose descended on the children of Israel. Now, it seems kind of silly, but what do you call someone who is too much into somebody else's business in English? They're nosy. Now, if you're trying to describe that to someone who didn't speak English, they'd be like, well, that seems a little literal, doesn't it? But yeah, that's exactly, that's the same, same kind of idea. Justice is an abstract idea, but the Bible uses concrete language. And so the concrete 
word for this idea of justice, broadly speaking, is the word straight as in straight line. So a straight line is what, what the scriptures is, talk, is talking about. So I want you to have this idea of a straight line in your mind. Uh, it's the Hebrew word mishpat, right? You'll all remember that, I'm sure. But even today in English, we might say that someone is straight-laced or a straight arrow if they're the type of person who keeps the rules and does the right thing and is above board. So we can kind of get those notions of what that means. Um, and if somebody isn't behaving in that straight line, what do we call them? Crooked. Yeah, we, have, we do the exact same thing in English. That's where it comes from. They're, they're crooked. They're all over the place. And the, and the Bible would use the word crooked to describe the idea of evil. So you have the straight line, but then you have like when people are all over the place, that's, that's crooked. That's evil. So it works in, in English as well. Now, the English Bibles that we read out of generally translate this word, the, the straight line word, as righteous. That's the way that they describe it, as right or righteous. And then that evil that, you know, is kind of all over the place and doing things it's not supposed to do, that evil, that's that, that crookedness. But what happens, how do you restore the evil, the crookedness, how do you restore it to the straight line? What is, what is required to do that? And that, that act, is the word justice. That's what justice is, is to restore what is bent out of shape to straightness. And so sometimes that's in our own lives, but sometimes that's in our communities to restore that. It's the Hebrew word tzaddik. So these two words, they go together all the time. You'll see justice and righteousness all together all the time in Hebrew scriptures because they're like peanut butter and jelly. Like you don't, you know, if nobody would ever offer you a peanut butter sandwich, it always goes with jelly, right? If somebody offers you cookies and they don't offer you milk, they're, they're a psychopath. They always go together. These things are always found together to the degree that in scripture, sometimes one word can be used to describe both righteousness and justice. They'll just sum it up with one word. And, but justice is the returning of something that is bent or broken to straightness. This is, this is good. Now this may seem a little bit abstract, but this is helpful. It's a very big deal to God. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 3. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. If you've read the book of Leviticus or the book of Numbers, sacrifice is very important. And so when the author comes along and says, actually, even more than that is justice and righteousness, it's a very big claim that he's making. Uh, Proverbs 21, 15. When justice is done, when things are set right? It brings joy to those who are living in a straight line, but it brings terror to those who are evildoers, who are crooked. This next verse in Amos chapter 5 verse 24 may be familiar because it's, uh, it's right from the I have a dream speech that Martin Luther King Jr. gave at the mall in Washington. But he said, let, of course it's from Amos, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never, or, uh, an ever falling stream. This justice and righteousness are together. Three quick things about mishpat and sari, justice and righteousness, real quick. They're, they're always relational. They're always about how we interact with one another. It's always about like, you know, me and another human or you and another human. It's never just this isolated thing. They're always relational. They're always related to the image of God. Everybody deserves justice and should live righteously because they are created in the image of God. It doesn't matter who they are or what they've done or their ethnicity or nationality or background or anything. Everybody deserves that because of the imago dei. 
And then finally, these definitions of what is a straight line, these definitions come from God. They come from God. We don't get to make it up. We live in a society that is trying to figure out what the straight line is, but they're just kind of making it up. These definitions of righteousness and the straight line come from God. Now that's a little, all this may be a little abstract, a little, but it's really important for this third thing that we're going to talk about because there's a third component to biblical justice. There's a third piece. And this is where the, uh, the world totally misses the point. Because everybody claims to want justice, right? Everybody. You've never met a person who doesn't look at an unjust situation and think like, thumbs up, I like that, that's good. Everybody claims to want justice. But what I feel like I've discovered in my experience is that people get justice confused with revenge. They get rightly indignant when something bad happens. So in summer of 2020, George Floyd is killed at the hands of the police. The police are there to maintain and restore justice. Uh, They did something unjust. They are rightly indignant. That is a normal feature human response. They are upset because these, these individuals that we have elevated within our society to promote and maintain justice have done something unjust, and that is not okay, and they should not get away with it. And so people took to the streets globally to protest injustice. But what I have discovered is that often what people say when they say, I want justice, is they want retribution. And they don't want a straight line. They want to bend the line in the disfavor of the people with whom they are upset. I, uh, I told you a few years ago, um, I was driving in traffic, and there was a lady who had the, the, the straightaway, and my lane ended, and I was trying to merge, and so I thought I would hit the gas and get ahead of her. And so, I don't know, she decided she was going to hit the gas too. And so I hit the gas more and she hit it more. And finally I decided, okay, well, I'm, you know, we're going way too fast on this road and I'm about to hit some, some traffic cones. So I'm going to hit the brakes and get in behind her, you know. And whatever I had done just really severely disturbed her sense of justice. She was either mad or scared or mad that she was scared. And when I got behind her, she literally pulled the car to a stop, got out of her car to yell at me in my car. Now, of course, I feel like I'm totally innocent because I haven't actually broken any rules or any laws. I was just trying to merge ahead of her, and she didn't like that. She didn't want me cutting in line. First come, first serve. Not fair. So she yelled at me, and I was like, sorry, lady, don't know what to do. My, you know, my family's like terrified, you know, in the back seat because this lady stopped traffic to yell at me. And then I thought she was just going to get back in her car and go about her business. But she ended up, when I tried to turn off, she ended up following me. So she's following me through all these neighborhoods. She's tailgating me because she didn't like how I drove. Do you see the problem? She's driving poorly because she did, she thought that I drove poorly. She is doing injustice in the service of justice but the problem is it's self-defeating we got we actually i saw a police officer and i pulled in uh because i was like we got to do something this is crazy i don't know where she's gonna hit me or something crazy so i pulled in and she got out and started yelling to the police officer to get me in trouble but he was very confused because all he could see is that she was harassing me it was a very confusing situation for this police officer to try to sort out and finally she left and he came over to me he's like what's going on i'm like sir i really don't know and he's like well have a good day you know and he just went about his day But the problem is, is this idea of injustice in the service of justice is self-defeating because then nobody has the moral high ground. Then both parties are the aggrieved party. Both parties feels like they have been hurt and it is okay for them to hurt in return. Nobody has the high ground. 
So it just ends up being this problem that escalates and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And haven't we seen that in our culture? Both sides of any issue think the other side is the most ridiculous, terrible human being, and whatever they do is justified because of how bad the other side is. It's crazy, and it has led to an insane amount of division in our culture that is just tearing people apart. See, the biblical idea of justice contains a crucial ingredient that the world's idea of justice overlooks. I want you to think back to uh, my dad and Michael. What specifically was it about my dad caring for Michael that changed that other man's mind about what was right and just in that situation? Because in his mind, the other man had not done anything wrong. My dad had done something wrong, but then something The man thought, oh, it's back to straight now because of something with Michael. What specifically was it? Because this is the crucial element of actual true justice that the world misses. Zechariah chapter 7 verse 9. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Then he defines it. What's the very next word? Show mercy. Show mercy. We define justice as retribution in in terms of like punitive damages. God seems to define justice in terms of mercy. Well, that doesn't make sense. Something, what? Mercy? Here's the claim, and the claim I'm going to support, and this claim is true, and you know it deep down in your heart, but when you first see it, and when you first experience situations that seem to go against this, you struggle with this, but this claim is true. Real, true justice is not restored by demanding what is fair to me. Biblical justice is achieved through our expression of mercy toward others. Biblical justice is achieved not by demanding what's fair, by by our expression of mercy toward others. Last uh, September, there was an Olympic qualifying triathlon happening. And uh, triathlon, as you can imagine, it's just crazy intense. First place and second place had already been locked up. Those guys had already finished the race. They were done. Third place was where the real drama of the situation was unfolding uh, because these two, these two athletes were neck and neck, and they were coming into the home stretch of the running portion of the race, and they were just close. There were two guys, James Teagle from uh, the UK and Diego Montriga from Spain, and Diego had been trailing James Teagle for the entire time. He had not been able to pass him, but it was close. If something happened, it might, he might be able to claim that third uh, 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 bronze medal spot. In the last 100 meters of the race, the race course took this abrupt U-turn, like a sharp U-turn, not a slow curve, but immediately you ran this way and then immediately you had to come back up. And James Teagle wasn't aware of how the course turned and his momentum carried him into the guardrails and immediately Diego Montrigo was able to pass him very quickly. You're, you're 100, less than 100 meters. You could see, if you watch the clips of this race, you can see about 50 meters from the end, Diego Montriga is going through some mental process here. He's like, I'm about to take third place. I'm about to be able to stand on the podium. I'm about to get the bronze medal, but something is not right. Now, this is 
crucially important. Diego Montriga had run the race fairly. He had not broken any rules. He had not done anything unjust toward anybody else. But he still understood that for the situation he was in to be straight, for it to be right, it would require a sacrifice from him. And so, inches from the finish line, he stops running and he waits for James Teagle to not only catch up, but to be able to take that third uh, and final spot on the podium. Of course, here's James shaking his hand as he passes him. He hadn't broken any rules. He had run a fair race, but he could see that true justice would require mercy. This is so interesting. He, he, think, of, think of this. He gave up what was rightfully his to restore justice. He, justice happened not in spite of mercy, but because of mercy. He did justice by being merciful. This is the biblical picture, portrayal, story of justice, that it happens through mercy. It's not because Jesus demanded what was rightfully his on the cross, but that he gave up and through an expression of mercy, we all are justified. Justice was served by Jesus giving up his rights, giving up what was his. Wow, this is interesting. Zechariah 7, 9, this is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. More famous passage, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? What is it? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Proverbs 21, 3. To do what is right and to restore justice through mercy is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. See, Biblical justice is not demanding what is fair for myself. This is what we think it is. It's demanding what is fair for me. It's demanding what is rightfully mine. And we've been reckoning with these, this struggle for years. But biblical justice is being willing to let go of my rights and show mercy to another. This is, this is huge. And there's one more dynamic here. If you just kind of begin to scratch at the surface of this, there's, there's this amazing thing that I, don't, I, I think humans just really struggle with understanding. Um, Diego Montriga, if, uh, if you were, I mean, I don't follow global triathlons. I, I wouldn't know any, either of these guys' names. But if you happen to Google this specific triathlon, if you happen to look it up um, on Google, the first few hundred search results are not who placed first, who placed second, who placed third. It's not the times. It's not the qualifying. It's not who stood on the podium. It's not who got the medals. The number one search result for page after page after page on Google is the guy who willingly took fourth place because he gave up something in that moment, but so much more was gained by that act. And this is the dynamic that we can't understand. If we are willing, we want to fight for our rights. 
I mean, that's what, our, that's what is ingrained to us since we're little children. You have a bill of rights. You have, you have to fight for them. You have to stand up for yourself. You have to take what is rightfully yours, and we want to fight. And you know what's going on in our society right now? Is people who are afraid of their rights being taken from them. And so they're scared that their rights are going to be taken from them, so they're fighting and they're upset and they're mad. But you know what? True biblical justice is willing to say, yeah, that is my right, but I am willing to let that go to advantage you. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't fight for his rights? If Jesus had fought for his rights, you wouldn't be here right now. But it's because he willingly gave up his rights and his life so we could re be restored to true justice. It's, 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 it's the story of scripture. It's the story of the cross. Okay, all right, you know, people fight for their rights and they get their third place medal and, okay, are you happy with life? Is that making you feel better? Are you glad you can hang that on the wall and nobody likes you? <laughs> Is that, that's great, good for you. What does this mean about ethnos? What does this mean about race, this current conversation about race and discipleship in Scripture? Well, much of the conflict around race is the question of just. What's just? What is justice? Because we're in this endless loop of everybody saying, well, what is fair? What is fair? What is fair? What if we, as followers of Jesus, were more concerned with the question, what would mercy do? Not what is fair, not what is just, but what would mercy do? Um, in the past few months, I have not been able to get this off my mind. I think about it constantly. Um, in the past few months in, in the Twin Cities, in, in Minneapolis in particular, the, there's been gun violence that has claimed uh, two lives. Three children have been shot, two of whom were sitting in the backseat of their parents' cars. They weren't doing anything. Sit in the backseat of their parents' cars, one of whom was uh, jumping on a trampoline. And, and all three were shot. Two, two of them died. Uh, Trinity, Trinity Audison Smith was nine, and uh, Ania Allen was six, and they both passed from gun violence. Well, who's to blame? The government, guns, Second Amendment nuts. You know, somebody needs to do something. What do we need to do? Let's, we need to get mad and we need to fight. Oh, no, they're going to take our guns away, so we need to fight for our right to hold. Oh, you know what? That's just Minneapolis. Don't drive over there, man. Just stay away from there. Well, if you're thinking about what is fair, sure. What if you were thinking about what would be merciful? What would you do? I mean, it, my daughter Taya just graduated from high school. We're so proud of her. She did amazing. She won a bunch of awards that I didn't know because she's so self-reliant. She just, they would call it and a recipient of such and such and such award. And she would, they would, Taya Doherty, and she'd pop up and, oh, that's, I didn't know. Man, you're just, you're just, that's awesome. You got way more awards than I did. I, I barely got my, my degree. And uh, <laughs> I was so excited. And I saw an article, um, Minnesota has one of the widest gaps in graduation rates between white students and students of color in the country. The country. The country. We are almost dead last when it comes to graduation rates for students of color. The government. Well, at least my kids get mine. What's wrong with them? Breakdown of the family. Yeah, all that stuff is true. We could shake our heads and we could say, man, yeah, people are terrible. Income inequality is terrible. But what would mercy do? What would mercy do? We have, um, we have people in our church right here in our early service. Don't forget about them. We have people in our church of all political backgrounds. I, I have no idea what their politics are. I don't know who they voted for. 
nor do I care. But these people are asking that question, what would mercy do? And so we have people that are just tutoring at-risk kids. That's what they're doing. But, but Minneapolis, gunfight. Nope, they're just tutoring at-risk kids. Because listen, this is really important. Whoever we think is to blame for the inequities in our society, it is not the child who is jumping on the trampoline in their yard. It is not the child who is struggling with their homework and can't graduate. It's not them. Whoever's to blame, it's not them. What's fair? Not what's happening to them. But what would be merciful? Well, you graduated from high school. You could maybe tutor someone who's struggling. You could do that. Uh, we have people who uh, support Hope Academy, which is, uh, which is a, an incredible model for a school in the Phillips neighborhood in Minneapolis for a bunch of at-risk kids very close to 38th and Chicago. We have people who support and go over there and serve. You guys, many of you have given to, to Hope Academy. A bunch of us are going to get on an airplane in the middle of a pandemic when the CDC says, don't do it, and we're going to fly to Mexico, and we're going to try to love on some Mexican orphans. That's all we're going to do. It's not exciting. We're, we're, we're not going to like fix all the problems with you know, street children in Mexico. We're just going to love about 40 kids that are at this children's home. That's, that's all we can do. A lot of you have made bags and you fill them with like, you know, granola bars and socks and water. And when you come up to an intersection, instead of keeping your window rolled up and looking the other way because someone's there holding a sign, you roll your window down and you hand them a bag of stuff that might be helpful. Here's, you know, here's a toothbrush. Some of you hand, hand money. It's just little things that you can do, but they're just going to throw it away or they're going to use, okay. But what's merciful? What's merciful? What's merciful? Many of you have made it a point to connect with Hmong families that are, that are part of the urban ministry here. Because imagine, you talk about people who have been displaced, and we're like, hey, thanks a lot for helping us out in the Vietnam War. Uh, we'll, we'll bring you to the States. Uh, we're going to put you in the coldest state in the Union. How's that? Thanks a lot. <laughs> you imagine, that's pretty, it's pretty drastic. But a lot of families in our church have tried to connect. A lot of families in our church have tried to get to know their Somali neighbors because we have a huge Somali population in, in the Twin Cities. Um, a lot of you have volunteered in Native American communities. Some of you all, and I'm not belittling this, but all you've done is just said, you know what, I could be more thoughtful and kind and respectful when I interact with people of different ethnos. And that's a huge step. Some of you have just said, I'm going to be quick to listen, and I'm going to be slow to speak and slow to anger when I talk about the subject of race. I'm just going to listen. <laughs> I'm not going to have to make people hear my ideas or type them out on Facebook. I'm just going to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Those are all small acts of justice because they're restoring through mercy everyone to that straight line. And here's the reality, and this is so important. The story of justice being restored through mercy, the straight line being restored through mercy, is not a story that is just true 2,000 years ago, Jesus on the cross. It's a story of Woodbury in 2021. It's a story of the Twin Cities in 2021. It's a story of your family and the choices that you make right now. It's a story that we can all participate in. Maybe they're small acts. Maybe they're little things. Maybe they don't feel like they're going to make any difference. But it will make a difference to that person, to that situation, to that interaction, and to you. Not demanding what is fair, but achieving and restoring justice through acts of mercy.